Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everybody and welcome to the second series of The Human Podcast, a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. This second series is dedicated to our very human stories of grief and loss, because when you dig down into the core matter of these experiences, what you actually discover is possibly our most unobserved and uncelebrated capacity for courage, resilience and love. Grief requires an expansiveness of self that stretches us to a fourth dimension. The extraordinary thing is that we can contain it, live with it, and that somehow the human heart can hold it all. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, join us and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit. Today we are just could not be more honoured to be joined by the sensational Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth Day is an award-winning journalist, author, creator and host of the hit podcast How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth is our greatest champion of failure because as she so beautifully puts it, if I examine my life, I know that the lessons bequeathed by the episodes of failure were ineffably more profound than anything I had gleaned from its slippery shadow twin success. The conversation about failure is one we need to have in order to feel better about ourselves and less isolated when life doesn't go according to plan. How to Fail has been streamed more than 15 million times around the world. How to Fail the book, an instant bestseller. Both the podcast and the book have shone a torch onto our darker episodes of living and revealed the kaleidoscope of colours that exist behind the veil of shame that we so often hang over our chapters of failure Elizabeth has shown us that far from keeping the transformational times of failure hidden, we should share them, celebrate them, because far from isolating us, they are one of the very many things that make us human and that unite us all. Elizabeth's interest in this area of human experience, as ever, has been a consequence of what she has described as a series of her own life-defining moments of adversity and failure, notably the breakdown of her marriage and the grief she has experienced as a result of her experiences of pregnancy and miscarriage. Subsequently, Elizabeth has spent the last few years courageously narrating her experience of this very particular type of grief, which has throughout history remained voiceless, locked away in the hidden, disregarded chambers of female-centric experience. For so many women, the journey to becoming a mother requires them to embark, to endure, and to contain some of the most unrelentingly brave and painful journeys of their lives, one which for many 
means they are required to stop at nothing in their commitment to bring their children into existence, particularly their own mental and physical health. A quarter of a million women every year in the UK experience miscarriage. The grief that is experienced as a result, for many, is indelible, yet it's a type of loss we are culturally expected to keep out of sight. Historically, there has been no space for this female-centric experience of grief and loss at all. Elizabeth, you have had three experiences of miscarriage that you have so courageously written about, and most recently, just last summer, during the onset of the pandemic, you said, and I will try and repeat this without choking up because it's just so moving, you said, we saw our baby's heartbeat on the ultrasound screen at seven weeks, a thumping dot that the sonographer told us was healthy and strong. Cautiously, we allowed ourselves to hope. And eight weeks, that heartbeat stopped. There was no explanation. I had a medically induced miscarriage at home and the pain was indescribable. It was my third miscarriage. For the best part of the past decade, I've been trying and failing to have babies. In the past, when I'd been through something like this, life was full of distractions. I could go out. I could keep myself busy at work, filling my diary and saying yes to anything that took me away from myself. Lockdown grieving was different. The emptiness I felt was reflected in the outside world. I had no option but to look to my sadness in the eye. I had to sit with the discomfort, clinging to the belief that it would pass. Oh my God, reading that and oh, it's, my, my Jess, heart is beating I'm out of my chest. I'm as well. Oh, you so we, we, are, we are meeting in this virtual way at the beginning of our third lockdown. So from one lockdown to the next. So, I mean, Elizabeth, how is it possible to ask how you are in any greater capacity than just not even today but just this exact moment how are you I am okay thank you for asking I think the things that I've been clinging on to with the advent of the third lockdown are that it's not unknown we kind of know how to do it and even if we don't feel in that mental space of being able to do it yet our bodies do know how to do it so Elizabeth so you're um so your very brilliant and um, powerful reframing of, of, of failure into philosophy has shown us that times of extreme personal challenge or experience of failure, as, as you so brilliantly describe it, are often opportunities for expansive personal growth. Um, now, you've said that your experience of miscarriage and pregnancy has been, I've heard you describe it as one of the life-defining failures that led to the generative years that have followed. However, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, is is that experience that you just have described as failure actually an experience of grief? And because when I hear you talk about failure, I, I, I wonder in this in that instance, if you're if you're actually talking about loss. I think that is such an astute point. And I think that you're completely right, but that it was only in the writing and talking about failure that I realized that's what it was Mm. because I think a different way of saying failure or a feeling of failure is a grief for a life unlived Mm. we're all haunted by the questions around what might have been had this thing gone differently had that baby been born, had that person not died, had I got that job, had I not broken up that relationship and 
And those are things that I think, as you will know only too well, Jess, because of the astonishing work that you do with this podcast, grief is a really difficult, huge, messy, strong thing to grapple with. And it can be terrifying as well. And so I think for me, my journey has been kind of piecemeal in that I've been able to um, reach a sort of catharsis by talking about fragments of grief. (laughs) And I suppose failure was one of them. Um, And then that enabled me, it was a sort of stepping stone to confronting something that was bigger and that was, as you say, a bigger sense of loss. And I think with miscarriage, particularly, I personally felt with my first miscarriage, which happened in October 2014, that I didn't really deserve the process of grief. Like I felt this is not as bad as, and I fell into that trap of kind of examining everything through a hierarchy of suffering. And I was like, well, it's not as bad as actually having a child and then losing that child. It's not as bad as even your like your grandparent dying. It's It's not as bad as something existing and then being taken away from you. And... And I think that what that did was kind of marginalise and diminish how I was feeling in my own head. And and I realise now looking back that I it's very difficult to grieve something that never was, but it is absolutely a form of loss. And it's taken me a very long time to come to terms with it. And I think it's only happened relatively recently, actually. Mm. And tell me a little bit more about what you feel has happened recently then. I think... What's happened recently is a number of things, but I think the main one for me is I'm living an authentic life. And what I mean by that, I know it's it's become a sort of catchphrase, hasn't it? Authenticity. But I mean that in a very profound way. I, you mentioned there that I'd been married before and I got divorced at the age of 35. And up till that point, I was living my life slightly pretending to be someone uh I was inveterate people pleaser so I was outsourcing my sense of self to others I was also someone who believed that life had a map um and that there was a kind of five-year plan and that if only I ticked the right boxes and did the right things and behaved in the right way and said yes to overtime at work I would eventually be rewarded with the things that I desired and those things included um a happy marriage, children, um, a promotion at work. And actually I I got to the point in my life where I realised none of that was happening. And I imploded my life in quite spectacular style in a way that really shocked a lot of people who thought they knew me. And I went from feeling very numb, which I think is a form of mild depression, to feeling like life was at once scary because none of my usual things were in place because with the end of my marriage I also lost my home and all of that sort of stuff but it was also a blank canvas where I could create the life that I wanted to live rather than the one that I was telling myself I should be wanting to live suddenly because I'd kind of exploded everyone's expectations of me I had no expectations of myself and that was enormously liberating and so the latter half of my 30s was about 
understanding who I really was. And through How to Fail and the podcast and the book and the live shows I've done and the reader events that I've done, I felt so utterly embraced by people I don't know as my truest self because I'm not pretending anymore. And to find that that had so much resonance was one of the biggest gifts I could ever have been given. And I'm so grateful for that, that all of those things that I sometimes thought were kind of weakness or vulnerabilities or something to be slightly embarrassed about or the fact that I'm sort of overly sensitive and cry easily or actually people were interpreting in such a positive and generous way and saying that it made them feel less alone when I talked about those things and so I just feel so much safer that's what it is I feel safer in myself I don't feel I'm pretending or hiding anything um I've met someone who, right, romantically, who uh, completely accepts all of that and understands me for that person. Mm. And, and I think that that's enabled me to look at things which previously I was trying to kind of lock into a small box that no one else would ever see. And I would just deal whilst pretending to be this kind of mythically perfect person on a superficial level which obviously I never was I was like highly tense (laughs) um and probably not that happy for a lot of the time so I think that's what it is and that's why I've been able also through amazing therapy I've been able to see that my losses um have their own integrity and that not only is it okay to feel sad it's actually a necessary part of your healing process. And I think the third part of that is that my partner um, has been with me through the last two miscarriages I've had. So um, my first miscarriage was when I was married for the first time. Um, we were going through fertility treatment. It That contributed to the end of that relationship. And then I had like, a few years off and then I met someone and love him and want to start a family with him and we had two miscarriages one last December no not last December we're now talking 2021 one in December 2019 and one in um, April 2020 and actually seeing his sadness um, was a really helpful thing for me to see to see that it affected him um, made me realise that I was allowed to feel. That's such a wonderful thing to have with your partner because I, I mean, I know from, oh God, so many friends and family, so many women, dear, closest, greatest loves in my life um, who've been through so many experiences of miscarriage and, and various different, very, very challenging times in the roads where it becomes so difficult with their partner because there is this fundamental disconnect in the velocity mm. of the experiences that they're both having. You know, for, for, for the woman, it is, it is so integral, literally mind, body, spirit. Whereas for the partner, it, it, it can be something where they're, not always, but, you know, it, it, it can be a thing where there is a kind of, a kind of dislocation. And so I think it's a very, very special thing to have to have to be bonded in that experience with your partner yeah I totally agree and I've had it 
both ways. So I completely understand the pain and the isolation when the person you were having this baby with doesn't seem to get it. It's an, it, it's such a lonely place and it is almost impossible to explain, I think, especially if the person in question already has their own children. It's very difficult to explain infertility to a fertile person and um, that's not a criticism of either party it's just one of those journeys that you can't fully understand the pain of unless you've been on it yeah and you know I, I think I think that that pertains to so many so many kind of the of the biggest human experiences doesn't it you know you you don't really have kind of emotional or literal language for them unless you have seen and experienced those things for yourself otherwise it's always almost it, it's it's always kind of hypothetical in your mind you know? totally and it's been extremely interesting for me to understand another very fashionable and somewhat millennial word triggering but I feel triggered when a high profile woman like Christy Chrissy Teigen or Meghan Markle or Dr Sussex talks openly about their pregnancy losses I'm so grateful to them for doing it but it's given me a huge understanding of what happens in your body when you read or see something that takes you back to that place of your own loss and I've understood what triggering means I think for the first time in my life this last year it's interesting, isn't it, that just the kind of, because um, it, it is a very kind of new word. I mean, I'm sure it isn't, but it feels like a word that's become much more part of our kind of commonplace vocabulary. It's interesting, isn't it, just how that word, having a word for something can amplify an awareness of your own experience of something. Such a good point. You know, I, I think there was something else that you said Elizabeth which I just would would just love to to kind of go back there was so much that you said in 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 your answer that I just would love to revisit a little bit if that's okay but there was something you said around um in the relationship you had with your your previous partner and how the experience has been different with your with your current with your with your current partner around having space for this 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 grief and um you know I've it makes me think about something that I, I read. I read in your book um, when in, and you're describing um, this is in philosophy when you're talking about how in the second half of the 20th century, um, you know, we saw the rise of the positive, positive psychology movement, which then merged with the later trend towards self-help. And you say that we found ourselves constantly being encouraged to think good thoughts and not indulge the negative which was we were confidently informed, holding us back from reaching our full potential. We were told we needed to start each day with an affirmation spoken directly into the mirror and in return we were promised wealth, influence, happiness and true love. And so, you know, it's as if really the knock-on effect of the positivity movement has become to to marginalise failure and the darker, you know, more complex states of human, of, of, of being. And... I just wonder, you know, going back to your point about, you know, having space for these are very different, unique types of losses and grief, whether, you know, 
that has also had a role to play in why we can't hold space for for grief and for loss because there yeah. there is there almost is no space for it I, your questions are so good um, so short <laughs> answer I totally agree and if I can tell you a very short story um an ex- a very close friend of mine her father died and I she called me and I went to be with her and I stayed there and I remember feeling so hopeless and like I wasn't doing anything functional to alleviate her grief and her grief itself was such a such an overwhelming thing that I, that I now realize it's it's kind of privileged to be witness to it and to be mm. there in that space as you describe it because it's unfathomable and I remember talking to my therapist at the time saying I just feel so useless I'm not one of those people who's like making lasagna and um knowing what to buy for her at the grocery store and I feel like I should be making a rotor or and my therapist was like she called you and maybe that's not what she needs she needs someone who will sit there and who will listen and who will create a space and I think that that is one of the most powerful things anyone can do because sometimes with grief and with depression there isn't anything that you will be able to do to fix it all you can do is tell someone that how they're feeling is valid and not only valid but part of this rich human experience and as I say in philosophy you can only really fully appreciate the blissfulness of happiness because it's transient and because you have the opposite to compare it to and life would be very boring if it was just one note one of my least favorite sayings in terms of like the positive psychology movement which by the way I have to say has enormous benefits too um I I absolutely think that it's one of those things that we can take certain things from and completely bring them into our life in a really um helpful way it's just that I don't like the wholesale approach of saying good vibes only like you'll see that in countless yoga studios and you know hanging up on the wall in people's kitchens and I it's so love bloody the intent, unhelpful but it's, it's so unhelpful it's like, it's it's so like unhelpful. I, I might, yes I might walk into that yoga studio and I might feel really down one day and or I might have legitimately looking out the window down. just <laughs> yeah. it's like no <laughs> and I actually think the pandemic for all its awfulness has also made a lot of us a lot more comfortable with saying I'm just having a really difficult day did you find that Jess can I ask you like during this last year and the lockdowns you've gone through did you find a kind of resurgence of unmanaged feelings around grief came up or did you feel that like the outside world sort of reflects how I'm feeling and I I value this time I had a massive resurgence of um, of very very raw kind of howling grief, as I would as I would call it, um, about my mum just after we launched her Legacy Foundation in September, um, which I don't think was just about that. I think it was the overlaying of lots of different things, <laughs> and I'm sure. Um, you talk about this thing of triggering I think you know there's such a pervading sense of of kind of global grief at the moment 
with what's going on I you know I'm, I think I'm, I'm sure that played a part in it but yeah I, I, I definitely had I had I had one of the the worst well worst as it is maybe a inaccurate word I had one of the, the rawest most kind of um disobedient unruly uh kind of roaring periods of grieving my mum since I've had since she died in September and I was really um I was really really blindsided by it because it, it came and when I say it came out of nowhere but it I didn't I just was completely unprepared for how I was going to feel and I was really in, in quite a bad way for a couple of weeks which is quite a long time for me at the moment and none of my normal things would work and I think it was also the thing of like you know like we all have our you know not being able to lean into the normal kind of support things like not being able to go and throw myself around the kitchen to Beyonce downing pints of wine with my girlfriends <laughs> which is yeah. one thing that actually does help fucking shake it out of you sometimes and just you know just being with your girlfriends in that completely raw unsanitized like deep like female way that we can be <laughs> you know that I think did I think yeah I thought I'd, maybe I didn't have my normal kind of all the things that I normally would do to help kind of bounce myself back I didn't yeah so I, I definitely did but I think I'm so sorry. No, thank you. I mean, but, you know, but again, I definitely resurfaced from that time. It, the kind of vessel of myself felt like it it had expanded. I felt Mm. I could see this, there was kind of more space at the edges for, you know, when you, when you, when you hold the enormity of, of, you know, certain emotions in your body, you, you really can't believe that there is space for them (laughs) and you know and then they pass and they do pass and they settle and 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 everything becomes much more gentle again and I think you I mean what I have definitely learned through the last kind of few years um is is to hold faith in in the fact that these things do pass and I think when I I was very new to the um kind of quite astonishing and kind of electrifying feelings of, of grief that I felt very, very early on. Actually, when my mum was diagnosed, um, I think I was grieving, in, well, I was grieving intensely for the whole year that she was ill, even before she died. Um, I was so shocked by that. I, I had no, I was completely disorientated by the enormity of those feelings. And um, it takes time to learn who they are and what they are and how they function and what their frequency is and how they rise and fall and what their lifespan is and all those things. And in time you, you start to know them. And I think I definitely, you know, it's at a point now where, you know, when, when, when I feel I get pulled back down to the pits again, for whatever reason, I, I can these days find time to look around and to see what's down there mm. and to try and, actually the opposite of try and run out of there I try to really really sit with it and try and observe what's down there because it's it's actually quite extraordinary what what happens in these very in the very deep 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 caves of of sadness you know and it's you don't really get glimpses at what's down there often and so this last time when I was I was at kind of at loss of what to do I just I spent a lot of time writing and I think um getting a lot of stuff down on paper when I could was really helpful but um 
But listen, I'm, I'm bloody talking too much now. No, but you've got such a vivid way of expressing things that the empty vessel analogy is such a good one. The idea that it's expanded with all these huge feelings that then pass, but the vessel is still expanded. It's like the sea yeah. has calmed, but the horizon is bigger. It's wider. Like, how exactly. amazing. That's exactly, that's exactly. You and just the, made it better. <laughs> <laughs> but the caves as well, the caves of like, or sadness. I had, I was very sad before Christmas, just to be a massive cliche. <laughs> but I, it's a bit like, um, apologies for their amendment thing, but it's a bit like PMT in a, in the way that every month I know that I'm going to get my period, but I forget <laughs> that a few days or a week for that, I'll feel like, I'll feel so down <laughs> that I will think, well, that's it then. That's me sort of tipped in, tipping into depression. And then I'll get my period and I was like, oh, it was just that. It was the hormonal shift. Every, and I always forget. And the same thing happened with Christmas. It was like I had PMT for Christmas. I forgot. Oh God, for come, and actually, come on. I know. I don't know why I do it to my, like, God I don't. Sake. Maybe it's because we were away last Christmas. And so I'd sort of forgotten what Christmas here was like. But I realised that one of my sadnesses around the festive season is that I don't feel I have my own family. Now, I'm very lucky in that I have two parents and an older sister and I have loads of godchildren and um, loads of children in my life, but I don't feel I have my own people, like my own person. I've got, you know, my lovely partner and he's got three children, but I don't have my own, like, mother-child relationship. And it caused me such sadness it really did and I only came to that realization even though it sounds so obvious by sitting with it and like trying to work out what it was and where it was coming from so as you would say being in the caves and like looking around Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
such a beautiful thing that you wrote, Elizabeth, in 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 the article that you wrote last summer, where you where you, where you speak about this in a similar way, and you said that you know grief takes time to filter through your system. When the oppressiveness of its immediacy lifts, it doesn't disappear. It becomes part of you in the same way that a single drop of paint mixed into a tub of white gloss will forever alter its colour. You know, and I, and, I, and I love that because for me it really encapsulates how, you know, it's almost like that drop of colour is this kind of astonishing new thing that enters the system. But it does, it, it, it does become part of you and it does soften and it, and it does become more translucent. And I really, really love that. Thank you. That's... It's probably one of, it's a weird thing to say in the context of what you've just shared and the sincerity of that. It's probably one of the favourite phrases I've ever written because, because it expressed something. It just expressed something that I was like, I think that's right. I think that's, that's what I mean to say because as you so beautifully put it, like it, you know, it can soften the colour and it's not the colour. And there was this astonishing dollop of something that you hadn't expected that went into the tub. And then you've also got that thing of like, but my my life was meant to have white walls. I bought Magnolia and now I've got soft pink. And you have that moment of like, my life wasn't meant to be like this. And then you paint the walls and you're like, this is so beautiful, this colour. And it's not what I expected, but informs my every waking thought. And I'm so glad to hear from you who've experienced like one of the most profound forms of grief any human can, that it spoke to you. It takes a lot to be able to capture and express these things when you're so in the eye of the storm. And I know that you did that at a time when everything was incredibly raw for you. And I think... I can feel how you've harnessed that astonishing thing. And, you know, when we can find words for these things, it really helps to help other people apply language for their own experiences too. And I remember reading that last summer and it it really, it really stayed with me. And I had no idea at that point, obviously, that six months later we'd be doing this. So it's... And here we are. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) But just on that, I don't know if you feel this too, but I feel when I write about something or when I do a podcast, like I, it's almost selfish. Like I, I, as in, I get so much from that moment of connection. Oh my I get God. So, so much from someone like messaging ever. me and being like, this is exactly what I felt or it, it's, it helps me. It really, mm. really helps me. It's about kind of honoring the enormity of these things. And yeah. I, and I do think that, you know, if you have, I mean, like you do, you know this wonderful platform to 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 express these things you 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 actually become those those statements become a mouthpiece for other people that maybe don't that don't have the platform don't have the voice but it it trickles down into other people's lives and it and it and it and it just means so much to people you know it's it's ways of helping other people understand the way that they feel even better and it's um Honestly, in a day if you're having a really fucking rough day, these things can sort of feel like they save you a little bit, you know. Yeah. In, in, a, in a funny way, this kind of leads on to the next thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, which is about like, it's this thing around, you know, when you're, you know, when you're pregnant, you're basically told not to tell anybody until you're 12 weeks pregnant, right? Yeah. 
in case something happens and in case I miscarry. But then surely if I miscarry, I'm going to want people to know so that I can talk about it and have some support for it. The implication there is that don't tell anybody. So if this does happen, it can just go away. You know, the the world will never know. You know, and it's like, but hold on, who is that in service of? You know, is it in is it really in service of the mother, or you know, or actually, is it in service of a world which just doesn't have space to sit with and acknowledge, and acknowledge, you know, the the, the and, and honor the kind of grief and and loss of this kind. Totally, it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning. This idea that for women, we need to do our uncomfortable things in private and not share it because there's something shameful about it there's a kind of nobility in our invisibility and I profoundly attack that on every single level because when something is invisible and unspoken about that's when you start feeling shame the Mm. antidote to shame is actually being open and making it a collective experience that as you said at the very beginning a quarter of a million women a year in the UK experience miscarriage and it's only I feel in the last couple of years that high profile women have started talking openly about it Um, and it's so important that we do that because not everyone wants to do that I get it not everyone does want to share but I think it's really important that we know because it happens sadly so much it doesn't mean that your experience isn't unique and worth grieving what it does mean is that there are loads of other women who will understand a bit of what you're feeling and I got an enormous amount of strength from that and I still do the infertility community on Instagram is extraordinary Mm. and I just feel so understood by them because I don't have to explain everything (laughs) from the beginning and go through the whole sort of cycle of coming up with the appropriate metaphor and our, it, it's very interesting that thing about not telling people that you're pregnant because um, I totally disagreed with it and told people for exactly the reason that you identify. When I miscarried, I wanted to be able to talk to others about it and to like share my grief. Now, I feel I've got to the stage where should I get pregnant again, I want to protect the people. Like I don't, I don't want to put people close to me through the cycle of getting their hopes up and then dashing them I I sort of know that's not my responsibility but I but I do feel I have more sympathy now having done it the other way for keeping it private because it's so fucking painful it is so painful when it happens to you and then there's a whole added layer of pain when you have to tell the people who've been rooting for you at every stage. And then there's also so much misunderstanding generationally and culturally. And, you know, I've had people, well-meaning people say to me, because my first miscarriage was at 12 weeks, my second one was at seven weeks, and my third one was at eight weeks. And they're all, well, the 12-week one was borderline, but those are all categorised in medical terminology as early pregnancy losses because it's before the 12-week mark. And so I've had people being like, can't you just pretend you weren't pregnant? Like, can't you just treat it as a sort of 
what? heavy period. Honestly, honestly. Oh my God. I, it's astonishing what people say. And and I think it's because they don't know what to say because it's only relatively recently that they started talking, people are talking about it. But you can't think of it like that because you've already hung so much of your own hope on the fact of your pregnancy. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I sort of understand it. I, I You know, I had kind of one, again very kindly doctor say to me you know the next time you get pregnant you just need to put it out of your mind for the first 10 weeks you just need to almost like pretend you're not pregnant for 10 weeks was this person a man yes <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of get it on one of them, like, God, I wish I'd be I wish I'd be able to do that I don't think I will be able to do that I think that'll be I really, wish I could really do that hard. Mr doctor <laughs> <laughs> and also because pregnancy is one of those things where so I won't, has have... that worked for you then does that work for you yeah say to him. <laughs> pregnancy is one of those things that you like you have to change your life from the moment that you find out you're pregnant you have to change your life because of what might happen and it's quite I was trying to think of another example of where that might be appropriate and I, I I've struggled to come up with one but it's like all of the things that I would normally have as like stress and anxiety relievers, um, exercise, um, the odd drink, <laughs> um, caffeinated tea, um, all of those cheese, mm. all of it, like sushi, mm. that all goes out of the window. And suddenly you're like, oh, but who am I? I don't have my normal routines mm. in place. And like, I'm constantly told I shouldn't be pushing myself exercise-wise, but that's what makes me feel better. All of this stuff, it's just so imponderable because not enough research has been done on it because for so long, the medical establishment hasn't cared enough. And it hasn't cared enough because we as women don't talk enough about it and don't lobby enough for it. And it's not an area of medicine that anyone wants to explore miscarriage. It's not edifying or popular or there's so much superstition around it still that quite often I imagine part of the issue is that when women have had repeated miscarriages, they don't want to be the subject of scientific investigation Um because there's so much emotion attached to it but it's just it's it's kind of criminally understudied I believe mm. I mean it's uh I mean, it's almost like the presumption is you know there's lots of people in the world populations are rising surely there's not a problem with miscarriage this is what this is what I mean it completely yeah. overlooks the kind of female-centered the intrinsically important sort of female-centered experience of that you know and for a mother every single every single pregnancy matters yeah you know and I I mean what do you think about this 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 thing around it being a kind of feminist issue oh I think it's absolutely I mean it's an anti-patriarchal issue let's put it that way so I feel from my experience of fertility medicine which was you know I had two rounds of IVF I had a natural pregnancy and miscarriage at three months I had a round of egg freezing after that 
I've had a hysteroscopy, which is an operation on my womb to remove a septum that might have been the cause of miscarriage. I've had countless internal scans. I've, you know, I, I've done a lot of tests. I've been tested for everything. It's been a lot. It's been really invasive. The vast majority of the time, apart from the last year, I've been treated by men. It's always been men who have been the kind of consultants and the experts. And men are wonderful in so many ways. And doctors are incredible in so many ways. But as a male doctor, it's very hard for that man to understand exactly what a woman who is miscarrying or infertile is experiencing. And so for me, so much of the language around it was the language of female failure, which was being delivered to me by a man who was telling me I was failing to respond to the drugs, um, who told a friend of mine that they had an inhospitable womb um, or an incompetent cervix. And I feel that this is language that wouldn't be used about other medical conditions. And when you already feel as a woman that you're failing because of this ridiculous biological and cultural conditioning... That's the last thing that you want to hear. Bossy vagina was the next exactly, one. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You have a very bossy vagina. Yes, <laughs> that's so funny. That's so true. You have an incompetent a, like, womb, yes. a very disobedient cervix and a fucking bossy vagina. <laughs> so Elizabeth, um, I've heard you quote this very brilliant um, Eckhart Tolle quote, which is um, the primary source of unhappiness is never your situation, but your thoughts about it. I wonder how that relates to your experiences of of, of loss. Mm. So my experiences of loss have caused me great sadness and continue to do so. But I choose to be at peace with that sadness. I no longer have to live in that place of suffering. It happened. I'm sad it happened. And I'm at peace because... It's taught me so much and I've experienced so much. And another way of saying experience is saying wisdom. So I have grown wiser. I've become more able to connect on a deeply empathetic level with more people who also have this experience. And I am so grateful for that. I truly, truly am. And I've met incredible people along the way who I wouldn't have met otherwise and I've been given opportunities that I wouldn't have had had I had the children that I anticipated I was going to have at a specific point in my life. I've been able to write books and launch a podcast and all of those things and so I'm extremely grateful for that and so I wouldn't, I don't want to deny that experience I'm so glad that I have it and those are my thoughts about that situation I because th- I think there's also something that I, I I noticed earlier around how you use the kind of fell off the, the kind of compartmentalization of of um, how you've used the kind of compartment compartmentalization of failure in your life to to kind of hold the to kind of almost be part of the container of your experiences of loss mm. and that for you that is a a better container for you than 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 loss maybe and is that yeah. part of the reframing that you you think is useful in this Eckhart Tolle 
quote. Yes, that's really interesting. I'm just pausing because I'm really thinking about what I believe. Um, I suppose failure does feel more comfortable to me than loss because loss feels like something that has no end and um and also at its most basic level it's that thing of like having mislaid something and I don't want to feel that I don't want to feel that it's my fault that I have mislaid my pregnancies I know that's an odd thing to say but even the the term miscarriage like you've kind of mishandled something you haven't you that there's something about the loss that feels like absent-minded I suppose that's what it is whereas failure feels to me so much more digestible it feels like it's not entirely my fault it feels like um it can be instructive rather than something that is so open-ended it's more dynamic somehow more dynamic yeah and I've actually never thought about that before but I think loss just for me sounds really miserable (laughs) whereas failure I'm like no that's okay because you can come back from failure (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) we and you work with it very well (laughs) (laughs) um oh Elizabeth um (laughs) Um, Elizabeth, what does courage feel like? Well, courage feels really good to begin with. (laughs) Um, I think courage feels like alignment with your strength. I do yoga um, and not very well, (laughs) but I love it because there's generally... hopefully always a moment every now and then where you feel like you're completely in the flow and you feel so centered and rooted in yourself and what you're doing in that particular moment and that for me is where all the good stuff lies it's where integrity comes from it's where authenticity comes from and it's where courage comes from it's it's that sense of alignment with your strength and a deep-rooted knowledge that you can do this so you can face things you can your strength is always bigger than your fear so really courage is about stepping towards your fear knowing knowing that you can do it definitely Mm. so elizabeth if there was one person in the world, alive or dead, who you would like to be proud of you, who would that be? Oh my gosh. Well, I should go with my first instinct, which was my grandfather. Um, mm. I know that my parents are proud of me, so I don't need that. Although it's taken me a long time to know that, but I do now know it. <laughs> my grandfather, um, I absolutely adored he's my maternal grandfather and he was so kind he really really set the bar for me for understanding what a kind man was Mm. he was incredibly kind um incredibly intelligent a real self-starter and he died before I left university and 
he was always quite worried about me going into writing and being a journalist. That was my path is that I started off yeah. as a newspaper journalist and I always wanted to write books and he always used to encourage me to write stories. Um, and I would love for him to have been around to realise that he didn't need to worry about me and that it was going well. But I believe that he can still see that. So he is who I would like to be proud of me. Um, and so Elizabeth, part of what we're doing in this series is um, part of what I really want to do is to, is to build out a rich language for um, this thing of grief, which, you know, too often for which language just buckles into the inexpressible and platitudes. And so part of what we're doing is asking our brilliant guests to bring a contribution from, in the words of another, to their, um, to, to their episode as a way of start as a way of building out that language and I wondered who you are bringing to the conversation for us today I would like to choose I have two favorite readings that I return to again and again and I thought I was going to choose one but actually because of everything we've spoken about I'm going to choose the other one it is a poem by the Persian poet Rumi which has stood the test of thousands of years and it's called the guest house this being human is a guest house Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Amazing. Feel it all. That is my favourite poem. I just, I love, it's exactly what we've been talking about. Like every single feeling, you can welcome them into your guest house. Mm, don't fear any of them. to end this absolutely glorious time that we've had um if it's possible to dedicate our time and this conversation to a song elizabeth what song would that be and tell us why i would like to choose on the nature of daylight by max richter um partly because it's got day in the title but also it is one of the most moving pieces of music and i connect it with a very dear friend of mine, Clemmy, who has been through an extraordinarily hard time. And I love that it reminds me of her and her incredible spirit and resilience. I can't think of anything more perfect to play out with. On the Nature of Daylight, Max Richter. Elizabeth Day, we love you. Thank you for all you are and for all you do and for being a guest with us in this series. I love you too. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast app, then please do. And you know the score, five stars, please. If you'd like to come and say hello on Instagram, then you can find me and all things human podcast related at This Is Jess Mills. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Jess Mills, with creative co-production by Bonnie Tyburn and produced by Joel Porter at dot dot dot. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.